Hey guys, my name is Abby Larson, and this is the first episode of To Catch a Killer. This is my podcast that I'm going to be using as an output for myself to talk about true crime um, in just different cases that I've heard throughout the years. It's something that I've always been very interested in um, and enjoyed researching, and I just thought this would be a great place for me to output my thoughts and to hear what you guys have to say. And so with that being said, I'm going to have this podcast try to be doing weekly podcasts of different cases. As for now, when I'm just getting it started, I'm going to just maybe be putting them out on a little bit more random dates as I try to get out some content to get this started. But after that, I will be doing weekly podcasts on different cases. So for now, we're just going to jump right into it. My first case is the Velisca family axe murders. So this was a murder that happened in Iowa in 1912, so over a hundred years ago, but has to this day stayed the most prolific murder in the history of Iowa. Still talked about today, still movies and documentaries made about it. So let's just jump right into the story. On the night of June 9th, 1912, eight people were killed. These eight people included two adults and six children. The children were ages five to 12. On June 9th, Joe and Sarah, who were the parents of the Moore family, had four kids, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul, and their kids were at a children's day service at their Presbyterian church, accompanied by two neighbor girls, Lena and Ina, who had made plans with their parents to spend the night with the Moore family that night after they got back from church. So the children spent their day at church, and the children walked the three blocks from church back to their home at around 9.30 p.m. To me, it seems a little crazy that especially the five-year-old would be out at church until 9.30 um, and walking back home at night on a Sunday night, but I guess maybe in 1912, things were a little different. But as soon as the kids got home, they had a snack of cookies and milk, and they went to bed. After they went to bed, there is no way anybody could have been able to tell what was going to come next. So sometime after midnight, the killer, or killers, we don't know, went into the Moore family house and killed the eight occupants of the house with Joe. Remember, Joe is the father. Joe's axe found in the Moore family backyard. The next morning, the elderly neighbor of the Moore family, who was used to a house of, a big house of um, six living next door to her, where on a Monday morning it would be usually be hustling and bustling and maybe a little bit loud, but everything seemed to be a little bit too quiet for her, and she grew concerned. So she called Joe's brother, Ross, and had him come over to the house just to check things out and make things were okay, and make sure things were okay. So Joe's brother showed up at the Moore family home around 8 a.m. on June 10th. After he entered the house, Ross went to inspect the downstairs where he saw two figures covered with a sheet in, a, in the back bedroom. So clearly Ross, um, from what I understand, didn't go anywhere else in the house besides the basement. He must have gone in, saw more than he wanted to see, and left and called for backup. So Ross contacted the town marshal whose name was Henry, but pe- people in town called him Hank. And Hank arrived at the Moore family home around 8.30 a.m. So this was only one hour after the elderly neighbor had called Ross um, to let him know that thing- things seemed a little off. So, so far, this investigation or beginning of the day is going very quickly. So after Hank went through the house, he came out to talk to Ross and, I quote, said, there is somebody murdered in every bed. 
He had also found the partially cleaned weapon used to murder the family and guests that was leaned against the, the downstairs bedroom wall where the girls had been found dead. So the girls had clearly been the last ones to be murdered. And after a search of the house, the killer was found to have left some strange things in just different scenes for the investigators for, to find. As for food, he had left a four-pound piece of bacon leaning against the wall by the axe. And they also found a plate of uneaten food on the table and a bowl of bloody water that police believe he may have washed his hands in before leaving. You do have to wonder a little bit, or at least I do, wonder if the uneaten food was left from residents before the intruder came. It does seem a little strange that he would have just, um, after the murder, put a plate of food together, not eaten it, and then left. Um, but clearly, I don't know how his brain works, and I never will, so maybe that is what happened. But another strange thing that the murderer did is he covered all the mirrors in the house and the glass in the entry doors with pieces of clothing that he had stolen from dresser drawers. I don't quite understand why he was covering the mirrors. Maybe he was afraid of seeing what he had just done, or maybe this wasn't his first murder and this was how he left his mark. Um, That's not something that I was able to figure out or if I will ever be able to understand. Obviously, I understand that he would want to cover the front windows, um, but also that brings a lot of attention to himself, so it's all a little confusing. The intruder also seemed to have stolen the house keys and locked the door behind him when he left which makes police think that maybe he was somebody that knew the family, somebody that was comfortable with the layout of the home, um, and that was comfortable just grabbing the keys and locking the door behind him after he left. So after investigating, all victims had been found in their beds and had been discovered to have been beaten 20 to 30 times with the blunt end of an axe. They were then, after being beaten, were covered up with their bedcloths. So, some of the rooms had indents and damage to the ceilings, which were a result of the upswing of the axe. So, he was swinging so hard that he was clipping the top of the ceiling before swinging down onto his victims. So, there was only one account of possible sexual assault, and that was from Lena. Lena was one of the neighbor girls that was staying that night and was staying in the basement, and she had been found with her nightgown pushed up and left exposed, but doctors concluded that she had not been sexually assaulted. Another strange thing of the investigation, and I don't know if this is just a lack of protocol from older times, but the scene was majorly tampered with after the police, coroner, minister, and doctors had left that morning after investigating what had happened in the house. In a small town of Iowa, word of crime had spread very quickly, and although officials had cautioned the townspeople not to go inside, As soon as the coast was clear, at least 100 people went through the house to take a look for themselves. One of the townspeople even took a fragment of Joe's skull as a keepsake. So that's something that is just crazy to me, and maybe it's something that was different about 100 years ago, where they didn't have the technology to search through the home um, a little deeper and they weren't looking for DNA evidence because that wasn't a thing a hundred years ago. And so I suppose they thought once they looked through the house, they were good to go and they had everything they needed. But for over a hundred people to go through the house so quickly after this crime was committed just seems wild to me, especially that somebody would have taken a piece of Joe's skull as a keepsake. Bloodhounds were brought in to search the home, but this was after 
after all these people had walked through the home, and so the crime scene had already been fully contaminated by the townspeople, and they weren't able to find anything. One of the biggest suspects of this case is a man, and he was a reverend, named Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, and he had left the town of Aliska that morning at 5.19 a.m. on June 10th via a train. And this was the morning after the murders had been committed. While on the train, the reverend had allegedly told other passengers aboard the train that, and I quote, there were eight dead souls back in Villisca, Iowa. The catch at this point in the morning is that the bodies had not yet been discovered, so there was no reason for Reverend Jacqueline Kelly to know anything about it. The Reverend Kelly was not a resident of the town. He had just been in Villisca for the time um, being that Sunday morning of the murders where he attended a Sunday school performance by Lena and Ina. And remember, Lena and Ina were the two neighbor girls who had stayed at the Moore family house and were also murdered. He then departed early the next Monday morning after the Sunday school performances. So it kind of makes you wonder if Reverend Kelly had gone to that church that day, watched Lena and Ina, and had some sort of fascination with them where he followed them home and not only were they killed but so was the rest of the Moore family where where they were staying. Reverend Kelly then returned to Villisca two weeks later where he pretended to be a detective and joined a tour of the murder house with a group of investigators. So this makes it clear that Reverend Kelly really was not known by anybody in the town of Villisca because he was able to get away by telling people that he was a detective and that was why he was allowed to walk through the murder house with another group of investigators where I'm sure he learned even more details about what people knew. So Reverend Kelly was also known to have a history of ill mental behavior. He was reported to have suffered a mental breakdown as a child. As he got older, he got married and him and his wife moved to America in the early 1900s. Here, Reverend Kelly began to preach at Methodist churches around North Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, and Iowa. He was familiar with the Villisca area because he had been assigned to be a visiting minister to several communities north of Villisca, although he had never been, or at least he claimed that he had never been to Villisca before this. But from the towns that he was a, a visiting reverend at, he was reported to have had a reputation of odd behavior, like sending people obscene material through the mail. I'm not sure what the obscene material was. I wasn't able to figure that out, but clearly he was known for just being a little bit off. So in the summer of 1917, which is about five years after the murders happened, Reverend Kelly was indicted for Lena Stillinger's murder by a grand jury. I'm not sure exactly why it was only Lena that he was indicted for. I do know that it's a tactic sometimes that somebody will be indicted for the murder of only one, even though there were others, so that just in case they are acquitted for the murder, the prosecutors are able to go back and indict him for somebody else's murder and basically just try again. But for this instance, it was only Lena who was one of the neighbor girls. Kelly actually signed a confession of the murder on August 31st of that year, 1917. And he said, and he quoted, God had whispered to him to suffer the children to come unto me. So I guess what I understand from that is that he believes God was telling him to send the children to God. 
and so I suppose he took that upon himself. But after pleading guilty, Reverend Kelly then took back his guilty plea, and his case went back to the jury on September 26th of 1917. So the jury had an 11 to 1 for the acquittal of the murder. So he was not found guilty of the murder of Lena Stillinger. But then shortly after, a second jury was immediately put together, but they also acquitted Reverend Kelly of the murders. So he was found not guilty. And over 100 years later, no one has ever been tried for the murders. They have never found anybody else to be indicted for the murders or haven't found any other clues that at least they've made public. There's, of course, lots of conspiracy theories, and I would love to hear what you guys have to say or think about that. To the funerals of these eight members that were murdered, there were thousands of people that attended the services. Services were actually only two days after the murders, which... I find it crazy that thousands of people over a hundred years ago were able to find out about these murders and be so impacted by them that they would all show up to this funeral. Over 100 years later, nobody has been found to have committed this crime, but many movies and documentaries on the stories have been made. It's hard for me to believe that over 100 years later, with all this new technology, nothing has been discovered, but I suppose it's just the house has just been so contaminated and the house is actually a tourist attraction now so every single night somebody can sign up to spend the night in the, in the Moore family home so every single night there's typically new people staying there it from what I found, it costs over $400 a night to stay there. And not only are people staying there at night, there's tours during the day to look through the house and just see where these horrible murders were committed. So that is all I have from this story. I'd love to know what your ideas and predictions are. If you guys have any theories on this murder clearly comes with a lot of questions as it's been so long and nothing new has been found so let me know what you guys think but for today that's all I have for you guys and I will be back with more stories soon. Thank you. Bye.